The business of culture, media and technology, markets, startups, creatives, politics, and policy. We cast a wide net here. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I guess the question about social issues would kind of be district by district. I mean, I think that we're going to see that in a lot of these contested Senate races, a lot of these contested House races. Are social issues going to be a big part of those campaigns? I would say yes. Back again, friends of the show, Pope and Shapiro. That would be Michael Pope and Jeff Shapiro, the dynamic duo you hear across Virginia Public Radio. We discussed Governor Glenn Youngkin, the abortion wedge, the purpling of Central Virginia, and much more. Plus, a flashback to my 2018 interview with a once homeless young woman who became her college's student body president. She's now a candidate for Virginia's House of Delegates. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me again, official friends of the show, Pope and Shapiro, Michael Pope, correspondent for Virginia Public Radio co-host of Pod Virginia and author of the book, The Bird Machine in Virginia, The Rise and Fall of a Conservative Political Organization. He joins from Alexandria. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. It's, it's great to be here. Thanks for asking me. I was promised Krispy Kreme donuts. Where's my jelly donut? As friends of the show, I will kick in Krispy Kreme donuts. Just remind me at the very end. And Jeff Shapiro, I don't know if he's a donut person, but he is, of course, veteran political columnist, politics correspondent here in the Capitol with the Richmond Times-Dispatch. How are you? Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Good to hear your voice, uh, Robin. And um, donuts, uh, it's Trafe. It's Trafe. Sorry. Well, I got the news over the transom that BuzzFeed is shutting down, but Axios certainly is still around. And the big thing that came out in the Axios newsletter this morning was that Governor Glenn Youngkin is breaking fundraising records heading into this year's General Assembly elections, which I guess are the Youngkin midterms. But Democrats still hold the cash advantage. I saw that Yunkin reported a, almost a $3 million haul, more than any other prior governor during the same period, according to VPAP. Talk to me about these Yunkin midterms, because after all, the Virginia gubernatorial election is a peculiar midterm that comes right after the presidential election. It is somewhat of an indicator species for kind of swing state mandate, uh, you know, 2021, right after Biden took the state handily in 2020. What are the Yunkin midterms? Michael, do you want to take that first? No, you go first. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, one of the things that uh, we've seen about this governor is this sort of, you know, continuing striptease as a presidential prospect. I mention that because though the governor has been dropping hints lately that he is unlikely to run for president, he has yet to say anything definitive on the record. And that leads one to believe that uh, given a somewhat fluid Republican primary environment, people looking for an alternative to Trump, if only someone with better manners. Youngkin is clearly leaving his, his options open. However, the continuing speculation about his national interests 
really has become something of a, a distraction for Republican legislators uh, who've just concluded uh, most of their business for the year. All of this is a somewhat long-winded way of saying that what the governor might be doing is a big talking point in how these elections for the state Senate, which the Democrats narrowly control, and the House of Delegates, which the Republicans narrowly control, will turn out. And I underscore that in his first year of office, this virgin politician, uh, having never been involved in, in politics or government before, spent a good deal of time flitting about the uh, country, showing leg, uh, if you will, as a, as a national prospect, rather than battening down in Richmond and learning his job. And perhaps Michael will agree that there are instances in the first year and change of the Yunkin administration, uh, that this is a governor who is who's really yet to learn his job. Well, let me ask you, Michael, I'm looking at the real clear politics average for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024, and I don't know how valid it is this far out, but Trump has really pulled ahead of Ron DeSantis, who's a presumptive competition. He has not announced yet you know, 52% of the RCP average versus 24%. Mike Pence is at 5%. You move all the way down past Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Chris Christie, Governor Nome, you know, Senator Scott, you hit Yunkin at an average of 0.4%. That's head to head with, is it Governor Sununu? I mean, these are really the dregs. Is there a groundswell of support for him to go out there to kind of to play the part of this fabled kind of middle of the road governor in the Romney-esque mold? He came from private equity. It's a turn away from Trump, from a swing state. I mean, tell me about it. Well, I mean, there's no downside in having people say your name on television constantly. So, I mean, I think Governor Yunkin is certainly benefiting from the fact that people are talking about him. I find it interesting that Yunkin is not taking the DeSantis approach, which is being kind of a troll, you know, talking about woke corporations and going after Disney. And we did see that a little bit with Yunkin going after Ford, but... It is a different approach that Yunkin is taking. You heard Jeff Shapiro just there talking about a striptease mentality, showing leg a little bit. And, you know, he definitely wants to attract attention to himself. But I think in, you know, recent weeks, we've seen him more focused on what Jeff Shapiro likes to call the Yunkin midterm election, which is this year, all 140 seats in the General Assembly are up for election. That's all 100 seats in the House, all 40 seats in the Senate. And for Yunkin, the stakes are high for Republicans to be in control of the General Assembly so he can get his agenda passed. And we certainly see DeSantis accomplishing his legislative agenda with the lopsided supermajority that the Republicans enjoy in the Florida legislature. Um, Yunkin doesn't have that because he's got this brick wall in the Senate. So the stakes are high for him in terms of being at the head of this campaign machine and seizing control of the General Assembly. And here he is breaking the previous fundraising records. So he raised almost $3 million in the first quarter of 2023. The person to have previously held the fundraising record was Terry McAuliffe, who raised basically half of that in the last quarter of 2015. So Yunkin is already breaking campaign finance records here, uh, and the stakes couldn't be higher for him in terms of Republicans seizing control of the General Assembly and accomplishing the Yunkin agenda. 
Is it Glenn Youngkin worth something on the order of a half a billion dollars? I mean, does $3 million in incremental fundraising really matter for him? It might be indicative of something else, but he could certainly sell finance. This was certainly the case during his campaign for governor. Uh, He threw $25 million from his personal fortune into the campaign. And, uh, you know, his net worth depends on market performance from day to day. But uh, the shorthand seems to be that he's very close to a half a billion dollars. One of the things that I think that I would point out that there is um, still something DeSantis like about Yunkin, and I guess it's highly imitative. It might even be described as Trump-like. And we've seen this from the very beginning of the administration. Michael made reference to the governor killing off the prospect of, of Ford in partnership with a Chinese technology company locating an electric vehicle battery plant in Virginia, Mm. claiming that this partnership was only a front for the Communist Chinese Party. This week, the State Board of Education, on which Yunkin will be installing a majority in very short order, there are new history standards uh, that are going to be uh, uh, adopted. And um, we've seen a lot of shouting and a lot of hand-wringing over what this administration was proposing under its first public school superintendent, who has since left in part uh, because of uh, perceived controversy over the standards that she was recommending and um, some of the false, if not outright incorrect, assumptions on which these history standards were based. For example, that the indigenous peoples of Virginia were actually the first immigrants to Virginia. I got to ask you, you know, to get the existential question, Michael, you are up in Northern Virginia, Alexandria, very different from, you know, let's say the Southwest corner of the state, the Southeast corner of the state, even Central Virginia, which is on and off purple. This used to be a reliably red state in presidential elections until I think Obama turned it and Biden won it handily. Do you risk overreaching kind of into the cultural wars if you are a Glenn Youngkin? For example, I noticed that Ron DeSantis pretty quietly signed that six-week abortion ban in Florida. It's not like he was out there parading that, where you would think that that's something that would really galvanize the right wing. But is it really a formula for national stature? If you have to run back to the center to be palatable as a national candidate, or even in Youngkin's case, to be able to have more Republican lawmakers win in-state? Well, if you think about the Youngkin coalition, what made him successful as a candidate was a combination of rural voters. We saw a massive, massive turnout in rural Virginia. In addition to that, really pulling up large numbers in Virginia Beach. You know, most metropolitan areas tend to be blue. Virginia Beach is kind of the rare Republican city. And so that was the Yunkin coalition, these rural voters and the Virginia Beach Republicans. And so I guess the question about social issues would kind of be district by district. I mean, I think that we're going to see that in a lot of these contested Senate races, a lot of these contested House races. Are social issues going to be a big part of those campaigns? I would say yes. Expect that to happen. Jeff? Well, you know, uh, this governor for his historic victory, his narrow but historic victory notwithstanding, has demonstrated little, if any, political pulling power. Uh, During the congressional midterms in 2022, uh, the governor and his PAC identified three races 
in which the governor wanted to play and in which the governor's handlers believed he could make a difference. Only one Youngkin-backed candidate won. That was a state senator who was elected to a congressional seat in a freshly redrawn district anchored in Virginia Beach, the governor's adoptive hometown. It was not a lopsided victory. It was certainly a credible victory for Jen Kiggins, but it was followed by a special election for the Senate seat Kiggins vacated, and it was carried by the Democrats. So I would suggest that the stakes in these midterms, these Yunkin midterms, are considerably higher, given that the governor hasn't had a great deal of success in these early tests of his influence. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Pope and Shapiro. That is Michael Pope, Virginia Public Radio correspondent. He has covered Virginia politics. Uh, His multiple books have been published. He lives in Alexandria. And of course, Jeff Shapiro, the veteran politics columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. You hear them constantly, hopefully more. I don't want to throw more work at you, but I love it as the duo of Pope and Shapiro on Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio. Speaking of which, I'd be remiss if I didn't plug the upcoming event commemorating Radio IQ's 50th anniversary. I am hosting Margaret Brennan, host of CBS's Face the Nation, Thursday, May 18th at Charlottesville's historic Paramount Theater. It starts at 7.30 p.m. I present her, will interview her during the special program at the historic theater. Tickets are going to be available at the Paramount starting this week. And you can also visit my socials or go to wvtf.org. Members of Radio IQ's 5050 Club enjoy free admission and VIP seating. More details soon. Stay tuned here and on our website. Full Disclosure Live presents Face the Nation's Margaret Brennan, Thursday, May 18th at 7.30 p.m. on the Charlottesville Mall at the historic Paramount Theater. And I certainly hope Pope and Shapiro, the uh, luminary duo, will be there. I'm a big fan of Margaret Brennan, so yeah, I'm definitely planning on being there. She's great. And one of the things I love about her is is she's like this uh, Inspector Gadget type reporter. She can hold forth clearly on politics and election 2024 and January 6th and everything there. But she's also covered the Arab Spring extensively. And she was their chief foreign correspondent at CBS News. And she used to host a show on Bloomberg TV. So she could talk about bank runs and Fed liquidity and economics. It's actually a lot to pack into an hour. And I'm psyched. So well, I tell you what, watching her on Face the Nation is really something. You know, she had some big shoes to fill with Bob Schieffer, who, of course, was the legendary host of the show before she got there. But she has used her position there at Face the Nation to cross examine her guests in a way that you rarely see on television. So um, I'm looking forward to meeting her in person. Which would be crazy for me to interview the master interviewer. But anyway, be there. I'll, I'll have a glass of wine beforehand. Uh, Jeff Shapiro, again, abortion. What does that mean in this grand race? Like you now that you know it's it's almost the the metaphor again of the yapping dog finally catching the pickup truck. Okay, Roe versus Wade has been voided effectively. It's up to the states now. The Supreme Court is mulling the abortion pill. It's not something I believe that many swing state Republican governors want to run on. Am I wrong? Well, it's not an issue that uh, Glenn Youngkin these days is interested in discussing. It's clearly the hope of of Republicans in Virginia heading into these important legislative elections that abortion rights is not terribly high on that pecking order of of issues, particularly in in swing districts, of which there is a handful. But, you know, Glenn Youngkin's position on abortion is clear in that he opposes it. 
in that he favors restrictions, but how far he's prepared to go depends on the audience. So immediately following the the Dodd decision, the disruption uh, of Roe a year ago, almost a year ago, uh, Youngkin said he favored a 15 to 20 week ban. Well, a short time later, he met with the Family Foundation, a conservative grassroots organization here in Virginia, and told its members that he would go beyond 20 or 15 Mm. weeks, but it would depend on whether there was a Republican majority in the General Assembly. After uh, that initial decision by the Texas judge scuttling FDA approval of one of the abortion pills, Youngkin didn't want to talk about it at all. Uh, Michael and I have joked about this. I staked out a meeting that he attended about a week ago, and um, he basically ran from me. He said, we are not going to have a conversation. I don't know whether that meant just forever or, or now, but he was not interested in talking about abortion. And by the way, Jeff Shapiro, that tracks with the campaign, too, because if you think about when he was running for governor, I tried to talk to him at an event in Tyson's Corner, and he ran for my questions about abortion during the campaign. And so, I mean, we have seen him run back to this playbook of being not quite as open in terms of which media outlets he's talking to or answering questions from. And it's really... Jeff Shapiro has identified something that I think is really interesting, which is that it's kind of like a CEO mindset, right? I mean, that Governor Yunkin is approaching this as he's the boss and, you know, he makes the orders and make it happen. Well, I think it's important to point out that, yes, he is uh, clearly interested in a hierarchical approach. And yes, he clearly believes that what he says should go. But, you know, in the political realm, uh, things don't work uh, quite that way with uh, multiple ideas and multiple constituencies and multiple centers of accountability. On the abortion issue, which is going to be powerful in terms of keeping Democrats energized, attracting independent voters, maybe centrist Republicans who are, you know, troubled by the, the parties, their parties continuing lurch to the right, public opinion polling, if only as a curiosity pretty much indicates that Glenn Youngkin and his party are out of step with Virginians on the on the issue of abortion rights. Indeed, Democrats, according to VPAP, they ended the quarter with about $23.5 million in the bank versus $21.5 million by Republicans. Is it just a word on the street that abortion is driving a lot of that? Yes, I think Democrats are really jazzed about this as an issue heading into the 2023 election cycle because polling is really clear on this in terms of where voters are. And then on you know the Republicans, I mean, Glenn Youngkin is taking the position that's probably the safest position to take for a Republican, which is the 15-week ban with exceptions for you know rape or the incest or the life of the mother. And you know from the from Youngkin's perspective, that's a moderate approach that he hopes will resonate with voters. And we'll see, <laughs> we'll see in this election cycle, especially because of the wild card of these new maps that were drawn by a court and are essentially nonpartisan. So the real wild card here is these brand new districts that we have never had vote before. And so, can you we'll give us find- an example of of one that kind of cuts across old orthodoxies? Well, let's start with the disinterest of the Virginia Supreme Court on protecting incumbents. 
traditionally a very important consideration when legislators themselves were drawing districts, you know, shopping for their voters as opposed to voters shopping for their politicians. At one point, there was something like 66 incumbents doubled up and tripled up in districts. Uh, a good number have uh, more junior members. I've announced their retirement or leaving seats in the House to stand for seats in the Senate. In Hampton Roads, uh, there's going to be a a knockdown drag out primary between two black Democrats of considerable standing, Lionel Spruill and Louise Lucas, um, both of whom are you know, strongly supportive of, of abortion rights. So there's a seat where the Democrats are likely to hold, but will likely almost certainly lose a, a powerful voice on the on the rights front. There's a state Senate district up in Northern Virginia uh, that's been vacated by a, a Republican, largely because it's now a toss-up district. The Democrats are uh, sorting out their nomination. Both candidates are, are strongly supportive of abortion rights. It works uh, with you know a suburban-dominated district on the edges of, of Washington, D.C. That's a seat the Democrats have to win if they want to maintain, as Michael put it, that brick wall on abortion rights and other issues in the downhill side of the Yunkin years. If we're talking about districts that have been upended by these new court-drawn maps, I would point to, in addition to the districts that Shapiro just laid out, I would point to Charlottesville, where we see Cree Deeds actually had to move from his Bath County district into Charlottesville so that he was not in one of these multi-member districts where he had to run against incumbents. And so now he lives in Charlottesville in this newly drawn Senate seat, which is mostly Albemarle County. Um, about 22% of the voters are from Charlottesville. There's also Amherst and Nelson. And you would think Cree Deeds, you know, former statewide candidate would be pretty safe. But no, no, no. He's got a competitor in the Democratic primary, Delegate Sally Hudson, who is a professor at UVA. So that Deeds Hudson race there in the Charlottesville area is definitely one to watch and one that was created by this reshuffling of the deck with these new redistricting maps. Hold that thought. We will be right back. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers, including an especially Apple podcast. The link, please subscribe, is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. A shout out to our broadcast listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio, across the great Commonwealth. DM me to carry this show on your air. And I must remind you once again, Full Disclosure Live presents Face the Nation's Margaret Brennan. I can't wait for this. Thursday, May 18th at 7.30 in the evening at Charlottesville's historic Paramount Theater. We have the UVA grad and a host of the popular Sunday morning show and veteran correspondent of foreign affairs and finance at that beautiful theater. Tickets available on WVTF.org and wherever my social media particulars are, as well as the Paramount Theater's website. Please do join us Thursday, May 18th. Full Disclosure Live presents Face the Nation's Margaret Brennan. If you're just joining us, my guests are Pope and Shapiro, the dynamic duo you always hear on Virginia Public Radio. Michael Pope, Virginia Public Radio correspondent and author up in Alexandria, Virginia, and Jeff Shapiro. He is veteran politics columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Jeff, you wrote something that really caught my eye recently in this. Fairfax County's losses are downstate's gains. Is the party over for Northern Virginia, a place from which 
increasing numbers are moving out rather than moving in. I got to ask you, this was on my mind when I drove up last week. You know, I go up to Northern Virginia and DC for work, and I also like to scarf down Persian food. It's one of my favorite side hobbies. But at what point on that drive up 95, which is often so congested, am I breaking out of the South and into the North, the demarcation? Where is that? Is that at the mixing bowl at the Beltway? I feel like it's increasingly been pushed down and down and down. Is it Stafford? I mean, the sprawl of Fredericksburg? Because Richmond, after all, is very different from Tyson's, very different from D.C. and McLean, the politics there. And Charlottesville has its own attributes and clearly Roanoke and everything else. But do you see what I'm saying? Where is that, that kind of psychic boundary? Oh, Washington is ever creeping southward toward Richmond. By the way, uh, Robin, uh, I would suggest that in our lifetimes, and that in this instance, uh, in a few years, Richmond will arguably become a full-on bedroom community of Washington, D.C., once high-speed inner-city rail is extended south to Richmond. Maybe over CSX's dead, cold body, but yeah, you know, maybe not uh, in my no, lifetime. No, no, no. But we'll Actually, see. Uh, CSX is uh, in on this in large part because the state's helping pay for uh, most of it. There'll be another road installed. There's going to be another bridge installed uh, over the uh, Aquia Creek, and uh, all of this is going to uh, create a what expects to be a somewhat robust commuter rail corridor. But to your original point. I think if you are driving south to Richmond from Washington, you are pretty much in Washington's grip until you reach the the north bank of the the Rappahannock at Fredericksburg. It used to be that Northern Virginia ended, at least as we know it, uh, at the Occoquan, the river that separates Fairfax and Prince William counties. That's no longer the case. The basic footprint uh, for Northern Virginia now is Arlington County, Fairfax County, Loudoun County, Prince William County. Uh, but more and more people are moving farther and farther south for any number of reasons, one of which is the spectacular cost of living. Housing prices, Michael perhaps can speak to this, are constantly creeping upward. And some of the big economic development initiatives, uh, I guess the most visible and most and best known right now would be the, the Amazon East Coast headquarters. This is putting even greater pressure on the limited housing stock in Northern Virginia. Uh, the problems are particularly acute for the people who work for Northern Virginia localities. The piece to which you refer mentioned, for example, that there are Fairfax firefighters who commute to their jobs in the county from homes in other states, such as West Virginia and Pennsylvania, uh, also from places within Virginia that would qualify as, say, a, 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 another state of mind, very conservative Hanover County, just north of Richmond. Yeah. If you're thinking about the psychic boundary between Northern Virginia and Richmond, that certainly is a moving target and one that's interested, it's worth thinking about, Robin, I want to know your Persian food recommendations, so perhaps we'll do that offline. But if we're thinking about Fairfax's loss as being Virginia's gain, or you know, the rest of Virginia's gain, I would point out a couple of recent facts here. There was a time recently 
when the Speaker of the House was from Fairfax County and the Senate Majority Leader was from Fairfax County. That is no longer the case, and it won't be after this election. And perhaps the highest ranking Northern Virginia senator has a primary competitor. So if you look at Virginia Senate District 36, you got George Barker, one of the most senior Democrats in the Senate, who is an appropriator and heavily involved in the budget process. He has a competitor, the former chairwoman of the Fairfax County School Board, Stella Pekarski. So we will see, you know, if Northern Virginia continues to lose status and stature and seniority in the Senate, if George Barker loses that primary to Stella Pekarski, it will be kind of like a generational shift in terms of who's representing Northern Virginia. But it'll also be a hit to the seniority and power of the delegation from Northern Virginia. Gentlemen, in the few minutes we have left, I have to ask you to the extent that Glenn Youngkin, like all Virginia governors, is term limited. I mean, he can run after somebody else takes the governor's mansion, as others have done before. Who do you see lining up for the Democratic nomination, the Republican nomination? Of course, very little visibility into what that world is going to look like after a, a bruising presidential election, whether it's a kind of a Biden-Trump rematch or Biden-DeSantis, if Biden has to go through a primary. But look into your crystal balls into, what is it, 2025? 2025. Uh, Talk to me. The next main event by Virginia standards. Uh, there are a, a number of people on the Democratic side who are interested in the uh, governorship. And, and believe me, the Democrats still shell-shocked by Terry McAuliffe's defeat, his narrow loss to Glenn Youngkin, are truly, truly desperate to win back the governorship. The names that one hears and the prospective candidates, some of whom are taking more and more steps towards actual candidacy, include LeVar Stoney, the mayor of Richmond. Previous guest on this show. Protégé of, of Terry McAuliffe. Abigail Spanberger, a member of Congress uh, who has demonstrated in her old and new district a capacity to run and run credibly in, in areas of, of Virginia that tend to be hostile to Democrats. Yeah, I believe she she said she goes clay shooting in her in her rubber boots. She does yes. that as well and was the first to win this district, formerly my district, the first female to win it and the first Democrat since, what, 1971? And then uh, other prospects for the Democratic nomination, uh, the former speaker to whom um, Michael uh, alluded, uh, Eileen Fillercorn, not just the first woman to serve as Speaker of the House of Delegates, but the, uh, the first member of the tribe, if you will, uh, the, the, the first person of Jewish faith to serve as Speaker of the House. A, a, another prospect is a uh, delegate from Loudoun County. Uh, named uh, David Reed. His roots, interestingly, are, are in oh, Rockingham County, excuse me, the Harrisonburg area. And um, he says that, uh, you know, Democrats have to uh, make more of an effort to talk to voters in rural Reed, Red, Virginia. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, uh, Jeff Shapiro just helpfully walked through all of the names, David Reed, LeVar Stoney, Eileen Fillercorn, but the name that Democrats seem most excited about is Abigail Spanberger, who, wow. who a lot of Democrats feel like can kind of bridge this red-blue divide and, you know, her background and her independence. And I, I think that a lot of Democrats are really eager for the election in general, but, you know, having a candidate that might be able to win statewide. On the other side of the ticket, we've got two people who have already won statewide. So I think if you're thinking about potential Republican 
candidates after Glenn Youngkin exits stage right. Uh, we've got Jason Miares is the attorney general who has already won statewide. And you know who else has also won statewide on the Republican side is Lieutenant Governor Winsome Earl Sears. So um, I think if you're thinking about the next Republican gubernatorial candidate, you would obviously have to start with Miares and Earl Sears. By the way, one would note that the spread between the down ticket candidates in 21 for uh, LG and AG were almost identical to the spread between Yunkin and McAuliffe. And I think that suggests that, um, you know, the, the partisan reflex is much stronger now in Virginia, maybe more our politics remain increasingly tribal. I wonder if um, we could see that as well in 25, that whoever gets up ahead of steam at the top of the ticket is likely to pull uh, the secondary and tertiary candidates uh, over the line by a similar spread. Michael Pope and Jeff Shapiro, you were just listening to Jeff Shapiro close us out. The dynamic duo on Virginia Public Radio, you hear them every Friday, I believe, as uh, Pope and Shapiro. I got to tell you, you guys are more kind of on brand as a duo than Bialystok and Bloom or even Shearson and Lehman. I love having you on. Please do come back on. It was great to be on the show again. So thank you so much for having us. Thanks for including us. Full disclosure, do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. If you're just joining us, I was talking all things Virginia politics with the dynamic duo of Michael Pope and Jeff Shapiro. I thought it'd be cool to end the show with some of my 2018 interview with Adele McClure, who discussed what it was like to break out of poverty to attend Virginia Commonwealth University, where she became student body president. Fast forward five years, and she's now running as a Democrat for Virginia's House of Delegates up in Arlington's 2nd District. I heard about you. I, I read about you in a school post, and I cannot believe in that doing more research, I mean, how many more grades of adversity there were in doing this. I mean, your mother had stability. It was, it was passed down to you. You knew hunger. You knew illness that required you to lean on Medicaid. Take me back to where this story begins, where you first recall adversity, where you kind of had to grow up as a child? I think uh, as far back as I can remember in Yuma, Arizona, which was a pretty destitute area, um, not many opportunities for growth. And uh, I do remember only having a few items in the refrigerator at all times. And, you know, I would, I would walk into, you know, friends' homes and they would have entire refrigerators of food. And uh, I knew that we were in a, in a bad position when I asked one of my friends, uh, and I think I was about six, I asked them if they can bring me the receipt from their mother's grocery run. And then I went down the receipt and asked them if they wouldn't mind sharing. I circled on the receipt certain items and they brought them out and shared them with my brother and I. And so it was that moment where you know, I thought, well, I need to try to do as much as possible or anything to get fed because all we had was, you know, at the time they called it government cheese, but really we had butter. We had sugar, which was surprising. And then uh, I remember having tortillas and then some canned foods. So, you know, my sister, I always thought that it was just an amazing thing to have oysters in a can. I thought that was the norm. And so my sister used to eat that with mustard. And then we used to rub some butter on the tortillas and roll them up. And that was dinner. Now, your mother was very busy working as a single mother. I mean, you, you'll get into it later. You didn't know your father uh, until very recently. But 
When was this made apparent to you? Did she have to pull you aside and say, kids, you need to pull more than the typical share of, of childhood weight that we have it rough? Was there a kind of a, a formal presentation she unfortunately <laughs> had to make? Uh, there, there was no formal presentation. Uh, I feel like uh, she was so busy trying to take care of us and then also trying to work uh, over 40 hours in multiple jobs to pay the bills. Uh, so I don't think that she thought to sit us down and tell us what was happening. We just kind of saw it unfold before our eyes. And and when we got that first eviction or when we had the lights off, I mean, it was pretty apparent. So and she would just say, well, I don't have the money to pay for it. And so I would, you know, specifically in Virginia, in Fairfax County, I would accompany her. My brother and I would accompany her to many of the different nonprofits, churches, you know, government offices to beg for someone to pay for our light bill or to give us food or uh, pay for our rent that month or, or even just subsidize it so she can have some time to find some money to pay it off so we're not on the streets. So it was, you know, pretty apparent. And that's when I thought to myself, you know what, I need to try to find a job as quickly as possible. And, you know, the job at nine, of course. At the age of nine. Yeah, that that I didn't make money from that. I did do car washes at that age. But the job at nine is I went into the apartment complex uh, leasing office and I said, hey, I know there are child labor laws, <laughs> so I know that I can't work for money, but could I work for cookies and, you know, maybe some of the trinkets that they had? And they agreed. So, you know, every single day I would go to when I wasn't in school, maybe on the weekend uh, and, at, and when I got out of school, I would walk up to. Uh, the office and they'd hand me a stack of papers and tell me to put them on each of the apartment doors. And I felt like if I created this relationship with the apartment leasing office, maybe they're less likely to evict us. And then also, you know, I get paid in cookies. So, you know, that would curb my appetite for just a little bit. When do you recall your first eviction? Let's see. Were you in elementary school? Was it in the vicinity of that time? I mean, you knew about the present threat of eviction mm -hmm. to your mm -hmm. mother enough to go and seek a apprenticeship at the leasing office. Mm -hmm. I, I think my mom told me that we received a notice and then somehow she was able to come up with the money. But I didn't necessarily see the effects of it until later. And, um, you know, she's had an extremely tough life herself and, and she's had to deal with a series of evictions all of her life. And one eviction in particular spiraled out of control when she or her life spiraled out of control after that when she gave her cousin some money to pay her bill, my mom got evicted and then ended up, you know, homeless and losing my brother and my sister to the foster care system. And, and it just went downhill from there. So I feel like for my mom, it was, it was very normal. So when she would break it to us, it wouldn't sound like something very devastating. It just seemed like this is something that we could come back from. So she kind of instilled in us the fact that we need to get an education and we need to do well in school. Uh, in these, you know, free educational environments. And that's what we did. We did our best and, and we worked hard in school, uh, even though it was a little difficult. There was certainly an achievement gap with, with moving from school to school and then also thinking about what you're going to eat that night and how your mom's going to pay the bills and the rent. One of the painful memories I have from elementary school, I just remember my father would dutifully send me off every morning with a Ziploc bag of uh, three quarters for school mm -hmm. lunch at Highland Oaks Elementary. And then, at, you know, adjusting for inflation, I think, I think it became a dollar. But the line was always held up. And I remember Rosie, the cashier, had to, I, I can't believe this. And you must be very cognizant of it now. And I'm curious what your experience was. 
wasn't lunch shaming kids, but it was getting kids to kind of swear that their parents paid that balance. They were constantly moving papers around at the front of the line and they'd make another line for free and reduced lunch. And I would have imagined even then that if somebody couldn't afford lunch, certainly the public school system in this country would give them free and reduced lunch. In fact, there was a breakfast program. You would think, and then growing up, you know, taking sociology courses, being a taxpayer, that there'd be a safety net, that there'd be aid to families with dependent children, food stamps, SNAP, whatever you call it, emergency medical insurance for kids. How was that in practice, for example, with, with school lunch and the school safety net? Um, I do remember receiving free and reduced lunch. I can't remember. I think at some point it was reduced and then they had to move me to free lunch. And there was, in my mind, a separate line. And I think that the lunch ladies made it pretty apparent when, when it was free because with the other kids in line, they would tell them the balance on the card. And then with me or other kids with free and reduced lunch, they just didn't tell us any kind of balance and they just told us to move on. But I was definitely thankful for that program because that was mainly the only time that I got to eat a real meal. And, you know, my mom did cook when she could and when she had food stamps available to her. But, you know, food stamps didn't cover the entire month. So that's why I was very thankful to the school programs. But another thing is if you were on free and reduced lunch, that didn't cover field trips. So it was also very apparent that you're a poor kid when you couldn't go take the trip to New York. Uh, A lot of people at that age in elementary school got to experience leaving the area and going on a field trip with their peers. And then they would ask me why I'm not going to what seemed like the greatest trip of their lives at the time. This actually breaks my heart in hindsight because I can think back to, uh, you know, there were kids we knew as latchkey kids and others who would come and uh, would really look forward to lunch or would be very, I just remember going back that they'd be, the ones in the free and reduced queue would would eat lunch in a very mindful way. I mean, it was an important meal for them and some would get there early that were bussed in that would take breakfast as well. And I'm I'm mad at, you know, I guess you can't be mad at a, a, you know, an elementary school kid for being so naive about it. I'm mad at the, I'm mad at the culture that it has allowed kids to be shamed in a certain way. I thought the shaming stops at clothing or the car that your mom and dad drop you off at. But thinking back on it, we had bake sales for the PTA Mm -hmm. and not everybody could bring money to a bake sale to even buy a dollar or a $2 brownie. We had the holiday gift shop where they'd Mm -hmm. sell trinkets for the PTA and not other kids. And it breaks my heart to think back on it that this was something that at an early age made like made a person feel like mm-hmm. a second class citizen. And book fairs as well. Yes, that was book a big fairs. that was a big thing in elementary school to be able to go to the book fair and pick out your favorite books. Uh, I know Junie B. Jones was a big one for me, uh, but I could never afford it, so I would just browse and I would see people picking or other kids picking up bookmarks, books, a bunch of different, you know, items that were available in the book fair. And then never being able to pick something up. But I do remember one time it fell around tax time. And so my mom got a refund and she gave me some money to go to book fair. And I bought, so this was two separate times when she gave me money for the book fair. And I bought a diary each time so I could write down my account of, you know, what was going on in my childhood. And I still have those diaries till this day. And some of the diaries, a lot of the entries uh, talk about me accompanying my mom to churches and nonprofits and asking for money for to turn the lights on. So it was it's pretty sad to look back and, and read it. And I didn't it's you know, I, I thank you, Robin, for having me on the show because um, and telling the story, because I didn't think there was anything unique about my story. I thought it was just part of life and that we fell on the wrong side of life. And I didn't 
you know, I, a lot of people who saw the article were probably shocked to see that I've, you know, been homeless, that I was in poverty, uh, because I don't talk about it too much. But I have been talking about it more lately because I feel that uh, it's important to tell the story and, and to, um, you know, talk about the barriers that exist out there for people, you know, to not be able to grow and, you know, uplift themselves from poverty. To the extent you're ever able to focus on your studies as as the ultimate transport out of this life, as the as the foot in the door, when did it first occur to you that you could, if you if you focus like a laser on school and the path ahead, that there could be a way out? You know, college applications, a lot of times you have to apply for a fee waiver. Mm-hmm. You never know if that affects anything, if it's kind of need-blind admissions. SAT counseling, cram lessons, if you follow mm-hmm. what's going on in the, the most elite New York City public schools, like Bronx, Sci, and Stuyvesant, um, a, a lot of kids have been preparing for that exam mm-hmm. since the third grade. And that takes parents with the freedom of thought and the foresight and the budget to put them in cram yep. classes. So not everybody starts off at the same starting line to take the PSAT for the, you know, what was that scholarship, the National Merit Scholarship mm-hmm. or the SAT itself, which is the all deciding. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's supposed to be a standardized yeah, test. It's supposed, it's supposed, to, be supposed standardized. to standardize for every every school difference across the country. But in fact, yeah. it it um it polarizes. And I and I don't uh I don't remember my score, but I do remember that it wasn't uh it wasn't extremely high. But I thought it was it was higher than you know what I thought it was going to turn out to be. But yeah, you're right. There, were, I felt intimidated by the test itself because all of my peers they've been taking PSATs. They've been taking prep courses because they could afford the prep courses. So I just felt like I was not prepared for the SAT, and it was extremely nerve-wracking. I didn't have anything to eat that morning, so I was very hungry. You went into your SAT hungry. I did, yeah. That's why my, when my stomach was growling, the, uh, yeah, the papers I was, to I was moving that. them around. And so I think I wasted some time there uh, trying to focus on my this growling stomach, which I thought was extremely embarrassing in a very quiet test setting. So I thought I was uh, interrupting the other test takers when, you know, then I had to snap, snap back and realize this test will dictate your life and, and where you're going. So for me, it was more than getting into a good college. It was getting into a place that was going to help lift me out of poverty and, to, and then in turn help me lift my family out of poverty. So and it has and VCU has. Take so. me to that life. Take me to VCU. Take me to getting in the letter preparing yourself, preparing the conversation you and your mother and your siblings had for debt, for you leaving the house, leaving Northern Virginia and coming to the RVA. Walk Mm -hmm. me through that. Yeah. So um, the letter came in. Yeah. So the letter came in and uh, actually, it's funny, I applied to two schools, George Mason and VCU. And um, luckily, George Mason, the application was incomplete, uh, which made no sense to me. And that's another story. Um, so, you know, I, I got accepted into VCU, had this financial package, so it was an easy choice. And, uh, I knew I wanted to go to VCU too, because of the diversity there. So when I received the letter, I was extremely happy. And I told my mom, she was very happy for me as well. Uh, but I feel like a lot of the times when, when I had these milestones, my mom was as happy as she could be, but then she had to snap back and start thinking about how to pay the bills. So it wasn't like other parents, when I see them celebrating their children or taking them out to eat, it was, you know, I'm very proud of you. And then now I'm going to pay this rent. But so, I got to ask you, you would, the, the prospect is of you no longer being a breadwinner in this house too. It's a double loss, right? Mm-hmm. You being a 
cost basis, mm-hmm. uh, ostensibly you'd have to bear the cost, the debt and the carrying costs and everything and the travel cost, but also not not being there to help and also with childcare. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I think at that point, um, my mom was going to take, so I think my brother uh, got out and she was going to take the children back to Missouri. Um, so fat, kind of rewinding, that's when I had begged her not to leave yet. And because she was going to take the little money she had to Missouri. There was Missouri. cheaper rent in Missouri. Yeah. Yep. She was going to take that. And then so because I begged her to stay so I can finish out high school and then go to college, uh, you know, put her in a bind. So then she ended up getting informally evicted where the landlord told her, hey, if you move out by this date, I won't, you know, I'll drop the case. I won't take you to court. And so that's what she decided to do. And so when I was transitioning to VCU, I took as much with me as possible and, uh, you know, I moved in. She helped me move in. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a great feeling, but I didn't get to buy all the stuff from my dorm that everybody else around me bought. So I just brought the necessities. And uh, and I, I remember my roommate brought the refrigerator because it was more expensive and I brought a microwave. So, you know, I scrounged up money that I had saved from working to buy a microwave. Uh, it was the deal, the roommate deal. And then my mom, um, you know, Right when I was away from college, I was continuing to send money back to her from what I had saved for the bills. But when she got evicted, she had to pretty much sell everything and then move back to Missouri. And um, so it was kind of weird for me not having some place to go that I could afford to go to to see my family during the summers. So I had to find a place to stay during the summers and, and during breaks. I didn't go back with my family like most people did. It was a weird feeling. And and then I, you know, like I said, I got on campus, immediately started talking to every single person, getting to know a lot of people. Let me and, get this right. Were, were you hungry when you started here? Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and but there was a meal plan. So I relied on the meal plan. And I also got work study. So that day that I got there and I was kind of on my, on my own and my mom left, you know, I was making friends with everyone and I ran into somebody who ended up giving me a work-study position in residential life and housing. And so once I made money from that, I sent that all back to my mom. When were you finally able to have some disposable income to do something for yourself? Maybe go out to lunch with a boyfriend or with a girlfriend or, you know, to, 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 be, to be young and careless for once. Was there any of that freshman year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was lots of that freshman year. I had a bunch of friends who would... uh pay for me. And, um, you know, I feel like in college, everyone was broke and everybody noticed that they were broke. Yeah, they're kind of leveling tendencies. (laughs) Everybody's eating the ramen noodles. Exactly. So I didn't feel out of place in that sense. And a lot of people who were close to me didn't know my background uh, until after graduation. And we've known each other for decades. Well, not decades. That's that's really exaggerated. So you didn't keep, you you weren't, you didn't have to be open with it. I wasn't open with it. Wow. And because I didn't think that it was something uh, worth talking about. And, you know, I kind of blocked out a lot that that's happened in my life. I just blocked it out and just kept moving. You were listening to some of my 2018 interview with Adele McClure. Catch the whole episode wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. Speaking of which, please mark your calendars. Thursday night, May 18th at 7.30, a special Full Disclosure Live from the historic Paramount Theater in Charlottesville, Virginia. My guest is Margaret Brennan, host of CBS's Face the Nation. 
to commemorate WVTF's 50th anniversary. Details and ticket links on WVTF.org and the Paramount Theater's website. Join us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. And don't forget to catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Next week.